back to the Freewheeling Podcast. I'm Abby Mickey, and today I chatted with Lauren Kitchen about her retirement, her mid-season retirement, the goings-on in the Peloton this year as someone who has been in the sport for a really long time, has seen a lot of changes, and could give more context to some of the conversations that Lauren, Amy, Gracie, and I have been having on the podcast in recent weeks. So we chatted about a ton of things. We dive right into a conversation about body dysmorphia and eating and how that changes when you retire. Actually, we met up for pancakes and we meant to record the podcast once we were done eating breakfast, but we kind of started talking about some relevant topics that I thought would be interesting for you all to hear. So we started recording a little bit earlier than planned, which meant that I'm going to throw to this this chat with Lauren Kitchen and it's going to seem a little bit abrupt, but <laughs> the reason is because I really didn't want to have the great conversation that we were having not be accessible to everyone who listens to this podcast. So that is what is in store for you all this week on the Freewheeling Podcast. Before we dive into that, this episode is brought to you by Zwift. Zwift is so convenient. Busy lives make it harder to train and Zwift is available 24-7 all the time. Whatever your schedule is, Zwift works with you, available anytime. Full of on-demand workouts that take less time and can be squeezed into your busy week, Zwift has everything from under 30-minute workouts to an hour workouts to two-hour workouts, basically whatever works for you at the time. So check out Zwift's convenient anytime workouts or, you know, just jump on and go for a free ride. Thank you so much to Zwift for sponsoring this episode. And here is my chat with Lauren Kitchen. We're sitting here with uh, with some pancakes, mm-hmm. impromptu. Well, not impromptu podcast recording, but um, you know, over breakfast. Yes. Lauren Kitchen. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, we're just gonna dive into it because we were talking about this before I started recording, mm-hmm. and I would I think it's important that we just like it's important subject. And so we're going to get into the last couple years of your career and everything, and we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff, but we got our pancakes, (laughs) and we started talking about the difference between uh, how we approach food now that we're retired and how we we were as athletes. And for those who don't know, Lauren retired in May, so relatively recently, Mm -hmm. and uh, since then has been enjoying the retired life. You're doing good. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So tell me what you were just saying. Um, yeah. So I've definitely noticed that my perception of food or, yeah, how I've approached it. It's not that it's changed completely, but I'm I'm much more relaxed than I was when I was racing. And it's not that I had a unhealthy relationship with food uh, while I was racing, but it's just, you know, it's, it is an important part of being a professional rider and being in a weight-based sport that you're aware of it. But definitely now I've realized, I guess, how much energy I sort of not wasted, but put on being aware of what I was eating all the time and now realizing that I don't and that I'm happy and healthy and that it hasn't really changed my body composition to the extent that it probably I thought it would have. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I feel like a lot of people sometimes will go through um, like a couple months of really... I found that when I retired, my eating disorder got actually a lot worse for mm. like a couple months. And then at a certain point, I like snapped. And I was like, you know what? I've been doing this for six years and I simply don't want to do it anymore. And I think like, I think that that's, that's pretty common for it to get worse before it gets better. I think so. Like for sure, because I, I put on a little bit of weight when I stopped racing and stopped doing activity and which now, is absolutely natural exactly, and normal and exa- should happen <laughs> exactly so and I, I knew that that probably would happen and but then seeing my weight sort of stabilize and in that whole process being eating just what I wanted when not I'm obviously aware of what I'm eating but it's probably more just understanding that I put so much energy into it and actually it didn't take as much out of me <laughs> like now I'm I don't weigh myself very often I'm like oh I should do that or check that or oh maybe I need to look at that or consider oh I need to make sure I'm eating but I, I like eating nice healthy food anyway and I realize that my values around food are still there they're the same and I just eat healthy food and I eat well and I've noticed that I'm I feel good you know so how how has your um relationship with exercise changed that that's been interesting I, I'm to start with I didn't really want to do cycling at all didn't didn't ride I didn't ride at all for probably a month um and I even even coming to Girona and everyone's like let's go for a ride I'm like no 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 I did do a bikepacking trip which was which was nice um but I didn't didn't ride after that I've done maybe two rides since but I have started running a few days a week and I go to the gym now and I'm enjoying that and I realized I did miss being outside and now I'm doing some work where I'm inside all the time so I realized that going for a run is just getting out in nature uh, it's a lot more time efficient than cycling when you don't have a huge amount of time. And the truth. Exactly. <laughs> and I mean, I've obviously heard people say that and I'm like, I am not going to take up running. And here we are. <laughs> also been doing hiking on the weekends, which mm. is really, really fun. Pancake break. Yeah. <laughs> we can take breaks to eat. Oh, I'm all about that. <laughs> Why did you decide to retire like halfway, not even halfway <laughs> through the season? So I think um, last year it was challenging like I crashed last year and I came back from it it was fine but I did have a concussion in that crash and I did the recovery all well and with the with COVID of course it was a challenging year for everyone Mm -hmm. um but I came back and started racing and I was struggling a little bit in the bunch for positioning and that's something that is normally a strength of mine so I I knew that okay that's because of crash and I hadn't been in the bunch basically and I was thrown straight into the Dutch and Belgium classics so you're like okay yep but I I had the thought of uh, of course okay I can work on this and this is what I can do but do I want to and it was the first time I ever had a thought coming back from an injury or a setback being like oh but do I want to do that and that was interesting to me that I had that thought of course I was okay let's work on it and progress and but I just wasn't super happy but I didn't recognize that at the time and then through the, I'm, I'm a member of the Minerva Network, which is an Australian network where Australian female sports women get linked with Australian female business leaders or corporate leaders. Mm. And I got paired with Leilani Fru, who's actually now has a position in the New Zealand Treasury. But she connected me uh, with Dr. Sarah Hill, who is the CEO of the Western Parkland City Authority. And it was just to be a mentoring call about maybe you want to be a planner in a few years because that's what I studied. And I was just realized that I was super, super excited for this call, which was no opportunity, just like a call with Dr. Sarah Hill. 
And I was like, wow. And I was way more excited for that than I was to go do Flanders. And that was interesting to me. Yeah, that's kind of a little eye-opening. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I prepared for this call, which was at 6 a.m. or something with the time difference. And I prepared for it and Lani helped me prepare for it as if it was sort of a job interview, even though Sarah Hill had no, no idea what I was doing. She just knew I was a professional cyclist who'd studied town planning. Then I had this call and I was sort of like, well, you know, I really want to start and I could start doing it now. And she's like, well, you know, maybe we're growing a lot, so we might have a position in our authority. And then from there, it led to the next team. And I now work for the Western Parkland City Authority. Uh, so I decided to retire through that call, following my feeling of not being excited by bike racing and being really excited to go work in an office and build a new city. Um, and having the support of my team manager in FTJ and just being able to be really honest with him about how I felt and for him to, him and the team to completely support me to the extent that they still paid me for the last up, right up until when I started working for my new position and they just completely supported the transition for me and that that has been worth so much like mentally yeah I chatted with him um earlier in the season and I was really amazed how uh, well, for one, how just excited he was about every single one of his riders. And for two, how much value he puts on paying the riders enough to be able to live and supporting the riders and everything. It was really cool. It was really cool to talk to him about it. Yeah, I really I really rate him as a manager. He he cares about the person. Uh, not You're not just a number or, um, yeah, you're not just a rider on a page. You're a person and yeah. he cares about that and... Like I rode for them for three and a half years. I still had a contract for this year and actually for next year. Mm -hmm. So for, to, to break a contract, essentially just after starting a two-year contract as well. Um, but I know his wife and his family and I, I had a lot of support from the team. And even uh, about six weeks ago, I went back to France and spent a week and brought all my things back to, to Spain and, you know, caught up with him and sort of ended it really nicely. And it was mm -hmm. super, super good and just such a I'm so grateful basically to the team and how they supported me over the last few years but also in this decision because they can see how happy I am now yeah so it's it's really nice I was impressed how he signed so many people um last year during the pandemic mm -hmm. he gave so many people two-year deals not knowing what was going to happen and exactly. and everything and it was really really cool I mean from like someone who was always on one-year deals to see that there was there are teams out there that'll be yeah, he's, supportive he's really shifted in his mentality to keep uh like have riders stay to build the team culture and he's seen the difference and how you can perform when you're not stressed yeah so there's a lot of emotion in a french team as well um, which which can be really really good and powerful but it can also be quite draining if it's negative and he recognizes that and he wanted to try and take away pressure so that the emotion was good for the second half of last year yeah. and then building into these next few years. And also the French development is really starting to come through. Like we're seeing Evita Music now come step up, Marie Lanette, like and there's a few other younger riders coming up from the team. And it's he's signed them on multi-year deals 
with their development as a priority and then putting not pressure but there, there is more leadership then from the international riders but he's got this overall plan to build his French riders up and yeah. it's it's nice to see this long-term vision because you don't see it generally in a lot of women's teams and no. they just buy Especially the top rider teams. yeah exactly they just buy the top riders for a year or two and yeah and that's it, whether Stefan signed these younger riders for three, four, five years. Yeah. Um, and then the international girls for a couple years. Yeah. And he supports sort of what they want as well. Yeah. So it's really exciting. And I think having like Grace Brown come to the team next year is going to be really exciting as well, like another step. Yeah. So. Ooh. You can have a pancake break. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> pancake break. I feel like that's got to be a thing now, like in races pancake break mm -hmm. it should be a thing it should always be a thing <laughs> i mean like every team has something you know that needs improvement um and i think that's what i liked about all the teams i rode for like there was always something but i could add or take you know pick it up yeah because like i i've thought obviously i've reflected on it now that i've retired but like um you know i rode in rabobank like with mariana and anamique and like all these pauline like that was my first team and it's it's changed so much since then as yeah. well, the sport, but I recognize like I gained something from every team, but definitely if I look back, the two teams where I was the most sort of happy was high tech and FDJ. And I think that it's because they had this like family feeling. Yeah. And I think it was also because I really felt like I could add something to the team off the bike, not yeah. also on the bike, but like um, in guiding the girls and captaining and things like that, as opposed to um just following a set plan which you know there's a time and a place for that but it was just what made me happy do you think that having that kind of family feel is really important i mean i don't know how mm. much you were making in your career but mm. because women make less having a positive environment is more important i think so for sure and i think also it's about finding the balance between the cultures as well so like uh i read like I have Dutch family history and things, so I do like and have that influence of wanting structure and routine and saying things how they Being are. Being blunt. Being blunt, exactly. <laughs> but I also found that I rode in a Dutch team uh, a few times. And even though I loved aspects of that, I also value the like the French emotion, uh, which at some, time, some points it's too much <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to have the extreme amounts of French emotion. But being able to balance the two and find... Um, find where I fitted and then you've also got the Scandinavian feel when I rode in high tech as well so being able to incorporate all the cultures I think you know, it makes me more well-rounded when you move through your career but um, definitely uh, I think the family feel comes from understanding what each team member needs at different points and um, and that's something that I definitely learn across my career and that I hope to take off the bike into the next career as well. Did you ever consider staying in cycling in some capacity? I mean, you have with coaching, well, I guess. Yeah, I guess, yeah, a little bit. Like, I've been, I was asked for a few years to be a director. Um, and then also with Cycling Australia have approached me with a few different options. But I ultimately, I want to step back, like in a full-time capacity, step back from mm -hmm. cycling. And I that's also because it's not that I want to go away from the sport, but I want to not lose a passion for it. And I mean, I got to a point where I lost a passion for racing myself that's why mm -hmm. i decided to stop but um i wanted to not lose a passion for the sport not become bitter about it and i think for me it's like i want to step back put my head into something else where i'm totally engaged in a different world and then and then come back to the love of cycling and sort of that's how i see it whether yeah. it plays out like that we'll see but so tell me about the the ef coaching gig because this is a new 
a new thing. The first team to ever have a coaching contingent to it, which, mm -hmm. you know, when you think about it, it makes total sense. Yeah, I mean, it's an exciting project. So it's still at the, the start, you know, um, but I'm excited to see what happens with it. It's, it's aimed at sort of offering top level coaching services, uh, nutrition, strength, uh, and in international and um, online interface so that you can coach anyone anywhere in the world. So it it's something that where part of the money will go to the cycling team mm -hmm. as well. So it's about restructuring the finance model of cycling as well. Yeah. And while, while it's still the start, and I'm sure it's definitely not at a point where it's funding much yet for um, the EF Pro Cycling team, but <laughs> we might see in the future other teams taking up platforms like this or the as the program will adapt to see what, what the market sort of wants. Because right now it's really aimed at that top level uh, CEO sort of um, angle yeah. of athlete. And it's, it's, it's not for pro athletes, it's for everyday people that want to go beat their friends at Strava or you know, lose 10, 10 kilos or five kilos and ride their bike a little bit more and feel better. But yeah. you know, it's, so it's also been really interesting because I've had to sort of change my headspace around coaching um, because I've been doing mentoring and coaching uh, myself, but it's been aimed more at development riders who want to become professionals as a goal, as opposed to mum who wants to improve her endurance uh, in her two hours a day where she has time to train uh, around her corporate life and that just changing that headspace around coaching is yeah. has been quite interesting for me as well but a fun fun to get into actually i want to kind of backtrack a little bit and talk about this mentor program mm -hmm. in australia because that's like a little bit similar to what the c um what the cyclist alliance mm -hmm. is doing right now what is this mentorship program yeah. in australia how long has it been going on yeah, so during COVID last year, I was in Australia and I, I realized like I've been mentoring riders in a um, non-informal uh, way, I guess, for the last few years, not just Australian <laughs> girls, but people would contact me and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'd give guidance and things. And, and I thought, you know what, during COVID, I want to like formalize it a little bit. So I posted on Instagram like, okay, you apply and I'll choose two riders to mentor for the rest of the year, an hour, hour a week for the rest of the year. So I had like 70 girls, I think, apply. Oh, and, wow. And to apply, they had to put why in the comments. So they had to be vulnerable yeah. and put themselves out there. And I, yeah, I had a lot of girls apply and it was actually quite hard to decide. <laughs> and I didn't expect, I'm like, no one will apply for this. And um, and they did. So, and then I mentored two young two young girls from Australia uh, for, for nearly six months, I think, um, every week including in when I came back to Europe in different time zones and everything. <laughs> so it was fun and I saw them progress and we built, built trust. And, you know, to start with, I had a bit of a structured program or idea of what I wanted to talk about, like coaching or nutrition or strength or menstrual cycles or um, balance or just in general things. But it sort of has led to uh, each athlete or person that I've been mentoring is um, individual. So some come with a lot of questions some want a structured session some want me to lead the session mm -hmm. and it's it well once we built the trust with the rider i think i've just become a point where they can honestly ask what they want to ask anything yeah. and know that i have their best interests at heart and that they can bounce ideas off me um and that i'll, I'll support them in that so i currently mentor four riders um on a weekly basis and um and yeah it's it's really rewarding for me because ultimately 
the reason I started doing it was I was recognizing what actually do I enjoy about cycling the most and in general in the sport and it was being able to empower others to work towards their goals not necessarily me achieving my own physical goals mm -hmm. so I that's why I formalized the program and being able to see some of the girls that I mentor succeed in what they want to do and being proud of proud of themselves and then coming back and being like oh wow Lauren you really helped me with this has been so rewarding for me so it's something I'm, I'm still doing and I will continue to do um, moving forward that's awesome I guess that explains it, it ties in a little bit with why you like Thai Tech and FDJ so much because they were mostly younger teams when you like very very new to racing a lot of the girls when you join the teams yeah exactly and I mean in FDJ there's a well, a few years ago when I joined, there was a few younger French girls and we've got the same group coming through still and they, they're progressing and developing and it was so sweet when I retired. A lot of them were like, oh no, but you're leaving. Well, can we ask all the questions? I'm like, you'll be fine. Don't worry. In good hands. But, uh, but yeah, it was just, I realized that I, I felt, felt really rewarded in that sense and in, I really enjoy, yeah, helping them. I, I, I enjoy that more than a lot of other aspects. So it's, yeah, it's something I'm definitely gonna continue. And I'd love to be involved in the future with like a development program from Australia. Like it's very hard to come from Australia to Europe, particularly now there's no structure yeah. on how to do that or pathway. And, and like right now I've been giving advice to a lot of riders from Australia that are looking to come over. Um, just because there's so many other things as you would know from America, but like, um, yeah. but you, you don't, consider like visas and flights and oh my gosh. where you're going to live and yeah. languages and <laughs> phones and all the little things that actually take a lot of energy let alone before you even get to a team or get on the bike so yeah. it's all of those things and um i think that's where i can also help guide them and it can mean a lot what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen in the peloton while you've been racing Oof. well i think like now the the quality has just improved like the depth and of riders and I mean that that makes sense like when there's more money in the sport most riders now are full-time professionals all the time uh, there's no people work well the top level everyone's full-time professional rider they're not doing something else on the side and I think that's something that we didn't see as much um, I mean uh, the quality of the race so my very first race ever in Europe was the Giro there is no way you would now send an 18 year old who's ever raced in Europe to the Giro, like ever. Yeah. So, and I finished. So <laughs> that just tells you, and I, I wasn't this crazy, amazing wonder, wonder kid, 18 year old. So <laughs> it tells you the quality has really improved and the depth yeah. um, across my career. And I think the coverage has obviously been huge in that too. But I think also the expectation around women's cycling has improved in a good way. Everyone expects every race to be on TV now yeah. and everyone expects that women are getting paid more and that we have the same quality as the men instead of being just grateful to have one bike or, or something like now everyone's like no of course we have all of these things and of course we have a bus and of course we have like and th those sorts of expectations um, and that's really great because that mentality is what's going to continue to push the calendar forward as well mm -hmm. um but the the sport in general and i think having the women's tour de france like stefan has said but there will be before the women's tour de france and after the women's tour de france yeah and it will change the sport will shift after that race next year yeah with the, the the coverage that will come out of that and just lifting the quality of the sport across the board do you think 
it's gonna be like an Olympic year. You see just the, the, the races are faster. All of the races leading up to the Olympics are crazy. Do you think it's gonna be the same next year with the tour? Uh, I think I think there'll be a lot of anticipation around it, but I think the calendar is quite full next year, like with the Giro, the Battle of the North, um, like some other races getting a bit longer as well. And I think that it's really exciting to see that, but I think we're going to see next year teams are not quite big enough yet to support the calendar and we're going to see yeah. a, like a stretch. Uh, so that's going to be interesting. But I, yeah, there'll, there'll be some races that are fast and hard I think and, and dangerous potentially um, and we're already start, start to see that like in Olympic years everything's a bit more stressful but I think also the different the, another really big change is the difference between the lower level races and the world tour races now like mm -hmm. there's a huge difference and the gap is just getting bigger yeah. at the moment and it's going to continue to get bigger and I think that's going to be a challenge um, moving forward. Well there's a huge issue right now in the pathway to get to the world tour races there's no development program yeah. we were talking about this on the podcast uh just recently about how dangerous the peloton is right now because there's so many women that get into the sport late have incredible numbers but they've mm -hmm. never learned the bike handling skills and so they can hang on in the world tour peloton and even fight for results but they have no idea how to handle a bike. And the, it's not their fault that there's no pathway. Like mm -hmm. there's no development teams. There's no like feeder system. Like for the men's side, at least most of the, a lot of the men's world tour teams have feeder teams. Yeah. And it's not on the women's side, it's they can barely have women's teams, let alone have like women's teams and also a feeder team for women. Yeah, well actually at the moment, I think it's also a UCI rule that a world tour team can't have a joint continental team like registered they can have a development team but not even like non-uci so it's not even an incentive for the team to try and have it at the moment oh. if they can't even do it so i mean uh, it's changing quickly so potentially that that will shift quickly but it is true i, I think um teams will have to grow in size that's just gonna have to happen because mm -hmm. the calendar is getting bigger um, but at the same time, it, it, it can't happen too quickly because the teams already have to step up and pay the minimum wages. And, and that steps up, I think, next year. It's a reasonably significant step up for the teams when they're all across the board. So there's that angle as well um, to cater for. If you get more riders, it's a bigger expense and the more races and things like COVID tests for teams, I know is quite a big expense that not all of them uh, accommodated for in their budgets. Yeah. So that's... Um, another angle as well but that's everyone across the board i guess have that have those sorts of things but yeah it's interesting to look at the calendar for next year because it's a lot more i mean it is almost double what the women are racing this year mm -hmm. and granted that is a little bit to do with covid but we saw this just like the calendar is so sporadic i mean mm -hmm. it was like jam-packed in the spring nothing in the summer and now we've got racing back to back and it's just there there has to be a better system for it um a better way to spread out the stage races for yeah. example and it's there's a lot of improvement that needs to happen is there something that you can kind of pinpoint is teams the most important thing that that needs to change like a, de a development kind of structure i think it's it's hard it, it is hard with the last two years and then now with the travel restrictions for a lot of races like for example the australian racing block is great you know, but that's not going to happen next year. And yeah. even if it does, it's not going to happen to the extent that it used to happen. Um, I, I think that team development is important, but at the end of the day, they need races to be able to develop. Yeah. And at the moment, 
with the way the calendar is, is everyone's going to all the races and then there's no races for the smaller teams and then when they can come, they can't show themselves. And so mm -hmm. I think finding the balance between some races being for the lower level teams and some races for the higher level teams and some where they're mixed is a better pathway for riders to show themselves and develop. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think having more team numbers, so maybe having development riders within the same team, so having 13 full-time riders and having four or five development riders in a sort of stagiaire payment system, if that's even possible. Yeah. Some sort of link like that with the UCI, so it would allow development riders without having a full development team and teams might be able to support that. And then being able to race them in non-world tour races, for example, I'm not sure, some, some sort of ruling like that might yeah. allow a bridge between the getting further <laughs> structures of lower level teams and world tour teams. Um, but I mean, it's changing so quickly. Um, and I think having like women's cycling has had a lot of influence from national federations over the years, mm -hmm. probably more so than men's being professional for a lot longer uh, at a higher level. So I think maybe having more linkage between UCI and national team to discussions as well, um, could be useful for development and having like an under 23 program come in or a nation's cup or something, um, in that sense, yeah. um, we might see in the next few years. I mean, having more world tour teams isn't necessarily mm. gonna, there's what, four or five new teams that wanna be world tour next year. And that's not necessarily gonna help. Although having more world tour racing will maybe mean that a lot, some of the smaller races like Turingen and Ardesh and stuff, the world tour teams will be at that point burnt out enough to mm. not want to go to those small races that will then open it up to other teams. And those are, those two races specifically are two races that mm. are hard enough and the world tour uh, team managers do keep an eye on races mm. like that for kind of bringing in new talent. So maybe that is something that'll happen gradually. Um, but it, it, things are moving very fast right now and it's not necessarily a good thing. No, I agree. It's kind of hard to keep up with. I nearly, I nearly think it's to the extent that if, while you want to sign a two-year contract or a multi-year contract, it's nearly a disadvantage because of how fast everything's moving these yeah. days. It's like, wow, and the market keeps changing. I really think it's like, it shocks to me even when you when you hear how much everything changes so fast. But yeah. I mean, I guess we have to look at it in a positive way. Um, but yeah, it's how to manage the negatives of the fast moving pace. I mean, in general, it's great. Yeah. Like overall, it's, it's awesome. It's mm -hmm. awesome and it should have happened a long time ago. Mm -hmm. This like shouldn't be something we're talking about in 2021. Um, but it's also, I think it's always important to kind of look at the broader picture and what's happening totally. to the sport. Totally. Yeah, and just make sure it's going on that structure that we see it going on and want it to go to. Yeah. So otherwise it just will go and we won't <laughs> know where it's going to end up and that's maybe not necessarily a great thing. <laughs> um, as someone who was just recently in the Peloton, mm -hmm. because we talked about this on freewheeling, but um, Lauren and I have been out of the Peloton for quite a while and even Gracie Elvin uh, isn't in it this year. Is it true there's less respect in the Peloton? I mean, I didn't do a huge amount of races this year, but they were very stressful this year. Um, and I did think, oh, maybe it's like, I got and had an injury last year, but 
and jumped back in and just sort of felt quite uncomfortable. But I did, I do find it or did find it harder to move through the bunch for sure this year. And speaking to a few of the other girls that I know are quite good in the bunch and handy to move forward and things like that. And they've found it challenging. Yeah. They're more challenging than, than previously. And I, I think that it comes down to a few different aspects. Like with COVID cancelling a lot of races, girls didn't know when they were going to race next. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the race, every race becomes really important. Um, the, the sense of we're not training to race, uh, racing to train anymore that shift has occurred as well. When you're racing, you're racing. Yeah. Um, And also being an Olympic year, last year and this year, (laughs) um, you have the stress of selection and people having their own agenda. Yeah. Uh, And then always towards the back end of the season, so sort of from zero onwards is actually, you you get this stress of, um, I need a contract from a lot of riders and smaller teams as well. So I do find that generally those aspects play into a, there being less respect Mm -hmm. but definitely in the spring in the limited racing that I did do this year I did find it more challenging than previously to sort of hold position and that's not something that I've ever struggled with so to recognize that and realize oh hang on it is different so I do agree that there is less respect but I think it comes down to just people are more desperate yeah Um, they feel like they've got to prove themselves um, at every bike race and and I think that sort of comes down to how teams are run and um the feelings girls have within their teams if there was multi-year contracts and maybe more communication with national teams around selection and that, that's a whole, no, whole nother kettle of fish you yeah, know? <laughs> but but there's those aspects there that definitely are affected by olympic selection yeah. and um that's something definitely would have seen this year since actually since you have like kind of no skin in the game mm-hmm. for <laughs> for the in the peloton anymore in the world of bike racing yeah what do you make of the SD Works just like completely wiping the field at the first in the first half of the year? Yeah, I mean it was well, it, it's impressive to watch in some ways, you know, like because you're like, wow. But I mean, also sucks for the other teams. Um, I think you can look at the good aspects in terms of they're not only strong bike riders in SD Works; they obviously trust each other mm-hmm. and they trust their director, um, and that's something that I think you don't see in every team or even if they say that they trust their director or do what they're told it might not be to the same extent so what Danny has created there is quite impressive mm-hmm. um, among those girls and and they all commit to it because they know they'll get an opportunity at some point and I think running a team like that is only a credit to him and to those riders so it's impressive in that way um, and I think if you're a, another team it's just something I mean and while it must be really frustrating and how do we how do we go against them having five in the final when everyone we've got one or two yeah. one card and they've got five um how are we going to get a result out of this um but i think it's just something that the teams just have to look at and go well what can we actually take from this and try and move towards it as learn, opposed learn to exactly l- exactly learn from it and i think it comes down to exactly team engagement and team bonding and trust yeah. among the girls and that's built in your off season and and before that actually and yeah. And open discussion and clear communication and clear debriefs and um, actionable goals and things like that as opposed to beating around the bush and not understanding each other and um, having miscommunication and um, letting small things become big things, uh, (laughs) which is something we see. So I think that Dutch influence probably helps in SD Works where they say what they think (laughs) a little bit. But it's going to be interesting next year with Anna and Chantelle jumping in the car and the shift of 
those riders um, out of the peloton and you're Lynn as well. So like Carol Ann, like there's a, there's a lot of riders there yeah. leaving. So while I'm sure they're still going to be super, super strong with the signings that they've got and the riders that are staying, um, it's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, it's, um, it's really cool to see some women leaving the sport and jumping into director roles because I think one of the things that goes along with development um, and how the how the women's racing is progressing is the lack of strong directors. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people who have no experience and would never get a job at a men's team who get picked up by women's teams because there's no other options. And as we get more directors like Anna and Chantal, we'll, mm -hmm. the level is only going to grow. But like teams need to realize how important directors are. Oh, completely. And it's just becoming more important now. Like. With TV coverage, the car has more influence because they can watch the race as well. They're, yeah. they're in the race. There's not just in their in the ear with the race director saying something about uh -huh, in the race five minutes after it's happened on the yeah. race radio. <laughs> so now there is a more influence and control there. And you know, with the with technology improving so much, like they do have influence right now and right then. So I think also with the money improving teams can now pay the directors what they should be paid yeah. and respect that and it's only going to step up the sport and for sure we're going to start to see some more quality directors not that there is some there's quality some directors. really good ones. exactly there's yeah. some really good ones but maybe the wording should be that they'll be paid what they're worth yeah. and we'll see more of that across the board yeah. and that will just lift the sport yeah and that that will be what improves i think the team results for a lot of teams because they'll trust the director and then they'll trust each other and yeah. having strong leadership is so important yeah yeah there's it's been we've been seeing a lot of the directors who probably shouldn't be in the sport leave in the last couple of years which is really good yeah, yeah. <laughs> Protecting yourself. On yeah, the exactly. Side. Yeah, white skin burns quickly. You know? Not really an Australian in a lot of ways. <sighs> yeah, no, for sure. I think it's going to be good to see more directors um, and more female directors. It's nice to see. So I'm yeah. sure in the next few years we'll see more. Yeah. Where do you think? If we look back on like right now, mm -hmm. what do you think is going to be kind of the biggest change in the peloton in like three years' time Ooh. at the next Olympic cycle? I think, I think the Olympics itself will become maybe less important than what it is now. It's um, not a bad thing at all. Exactly. I, I do because <laughs> I mean, women's cycling isn't men's cycling, but there are aspects that are moving towards men's cycling, and one is that you know, professional, like the Tour de France and the big professional races are potentially more important to a lot of riders and teams than the Olympics. Yeah. So I think we're going to move more towards that. Like it's not, I'm from a nation and, and you are as well, where, where the Olympics is so important and representing yeah. your country, but to a lot of nations, it isn't the biggest thing. So I think we will see a general shift that way. Um, I, I do think that women are going to be paid more, which is that going to be a good, good thing that we'll see in the next three years. Yeah. Um, the, the change in the last three years has been huge. So if it continues at that rate, it's gonna it's very exciting for the sport. Um, I and I'd like I'd like to see a clearer pathway in the next three years. Yeah. Just from or from an Australian perspective at least, like how can a young Australian rider that goes pretty good at a say a state level progress firstly to national level which is sort of a pathway now but not really mm -hmm. but then how do they go from that to europe and, yeah. and what's how do they do that I mean, is there a structure and 
oh, they're European teams that are going to start, even like club teams are going to start looking at Australian club races. Like the same as maybe how they look at the US racing scene and go, oh, that rider's going well and take them. But that's not happening in Australia. And um, if they, I'd love to see some sort of structure. So a young 16 year old goes, I want to get to that team and this is how I do it. And that they can actually see that path yeah. as opposed to them just seeing this as like something that they have no idea how to get there and no possible way. And then they, you know, don't continue with the sport because yeah. there's no clear pathway. So that's, that's what I'd like to see. I feel like GB is a really good example of how other countries should structure it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like nations races or whatever they're, I don't know. I can't remember what yeah. the cup is called that they have. Um, but they've got multiple teams over there that are kind of will jump over to Europe a little mm. bit and dabble in the European racing. And and we've seen a lot of really good British talent come up in the last couple of years because they have a very clear pathway. Mm-hmm. And of course, they're closer, but they're still now with Brexit. I mean, they have the same um, like paperwork problems yeah. that everyone else does. Yeah, it's so true. They've, but they've really kind of maybe it is because they're closer that they've they have a um more racing in in britain and everything but i think that the us and australia could learn a lot from them i mean yeah having teams also from the us and australia come over like we're also seeing a small team like like instafund from canada coming over like teams like this they they're getting invites to big races and they're giving opportunity and i think that it would be really great to see some Australian teams do that and I've spoken with a few of the teams recently um, the directors and there's a few that showed a lot of interest in we want to come to Belgium and do commesses for a month yeah and that's exactly what the girls need they yeah. need to come and race in Belgium or Holland where they you don't have totally, to come yeah. and do the big races no you can come and do the small races figure out how to do it yeah learn how, how to, to ride, ride in, a in a bunch exactly yeah and then you can progress from there it doesn't have to be it was like we go over and we're doing La Course, and if you like, and you didn't do well at La Course, well, we're cutting the budget. And I was like, this is doesn't make any sense. No, and how can you learn like that? And I mean, that's the same thing even with the Australian, Australian national team did it well in some aspects when I was younger. Like we did do some commesses and criteriums in Belgium and Holland, which was great. But we also did the Giro as my first race and. While at the point at that time it might not have been the same level Giro as it is now, it was still Giro and it was still the biggest tour that we had. So, I think that having a, a pathway in the future where they can come and race those smaller races, and that's what I'm recommending to any young Australian or or American as well. If they want to come jump in European racing, they they need to go race in Belgium and Holland, and that's because in Australia and I think also in America, like the roads that they race on are so different and yeah. the, the bunch and the size and the the, qual- well, the quality might be there, but not the depth. So just learning skills and how to, you know, Belgium and Dutch racing will teach you all of those things. Yes, whether will. you can be a, you can be a pure <laughs> climber, but you still need to go and do it and, yeah. you know, suffer and learn that you can't corner as well as you thought. Yep. <laughs> um, but it'll teach Your you so much. Your ego takes a good hard knocking, but it's good for you. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but it's sort of like doing an apprenticeship. Yeah. Like, you know, it's the training part. Yeah. And I, I think that it's super important. And I, yeah, I'm working with some young riders and that's the pathway I'm recommending. I'd rather them go to a club team in Belgium or Holland than a UCI team in Spain or somewhere else. Yeah. If they're just gonna do not get firstly not get selected for the bigger races 
and then do small UCI races that don't suit them as opposed to going racing in Belgium and Holland. Yeah. Well, this has been a very good podcast. Thank you so much for no your worries. time. Thank you. It's been fun. Yeah, we'll have to have you back. I think I say that a lot, but <laughs> I feel like we could keep talking for another yeah. hour.